Once upon a time, evangelical subcultures loved spiritual warfare novels and prairie romance novels. We liked angel figurines and Amish fiction. We shared adult coloring books starring small boys who have afterlife visions, and we got all over the Da Vinci Code. Now our subcultures have been overtaken by another trend, politics. All the time, politics. The king of evangelical popular culture. When and why did this happen? Should we try to change it? Welcome to Dystopian Doom, our next series of episodes about bad governments and good citizens and beyond. Welcome back to the hallowed halls of fantastical truth, the podcast from lorehaven.com in which we explore fantastical stories for God's glory and apply their meanings to the real world, which includes but is not limited to politics. I'm E. Stephen Burnett, Lorehaven's publisher and the co-author of The Pop Culture Parent. I'm Zachary Russell, and I approve this message. And this is episode 136, How Did Politics Become King of Evangelical Popular Culture? Have you noticed we didn't ask the question, have politics become king of evangelical popular culture? I'm assuming things in that headline there. I, I did write the headline, I admit it, and I'm going to assume that it's not whether, but how they were asking about politics, which are getting all over everything, not just at this time of year, when, as of this episode's release date, we are one week from election day in the United States. You know, Stephen, we are in the age of celebrity everything, and so... I think this is partly just an outgrowth of that is that we are obsessed with public figures of all stripes, be they political, entertainment, cultural. So I think this is part of that bigger issue that we've got going on in our culture. Absolutely. And we're going to get into as much of that as we can while keeping our focus at Lorehaven. We focus on fantastical stories, usually made by Christians, fantastical stories for the glory of God. Politics are part of world building in the real world, though. Uh, but as I said earlier, uh, they ought not be uh, the dominant force. I think I'm going to give away my conclusion early there, but hopefully show my work in just a moment. It's going to be a fun discussion here, though. Uh, not political, but I would say super political. And we're talking about the imaginations that we have behind all of these issues. Before we get started, though, let's stop by our first sponsor for this episode, which is Enclave Publishing. They have a new book coming out in a couple of weeks uh, in November now of 2022, and it's called Aberration. It is book two of the Children of the Consortium series by Kathy McCrum. Here's the description. Freedom awaits, but the consortium is watching. When rogue drones threaten citizens and the ship's crew falls ill, the recorder answers their call for help, once again drawing scrutiny from the consortium. With no other option and under an elder's overbearing watch, she returns to Palace Station, where she nearly lost her life in the hope of finding something, anything, to save her friends and countless others. Her friends are determined to keep her safe, but for the recorder, saving others comes first, no matter the cost. That is book two of the Children of the Consortium series, Aberration. It's coming out on November the 15th from Enclave Publishing and author Kathy McCrum. We're going to have a review of that book, but we reviewed the book one recorder and we said Kathy McCrum handles heavy subjects with a light touch, keeping the novel from grimness. Recorder is a creative and engaging novel that will appeal to a broad audience. The new one releases November 15th and it will be in print as well as audiobook formats. All the links in our show notes. Zach, happy post Halloween. I hope that your house is swimming in uh, completely gluten free candy. Uh, we have some over here, I'm sure, left over. 
especially because our neighborhood decided it was high time to replace all the curbs on our streets right before trick-or-treating season. So I don't know how the kids uh, got past the sidewalks, past that decorative orange fencing they've put up. Very festive. Anyway, we've got a concession stand full of those uh, little candy corns, the pumpkins, fun-sized candy bars, all that stuff. It's going to be fun-sized, I swear. Even if you don't like t- uh, politics, this subject is going to be fun, I hope, uh, fun to snack on here. By the way, I wanted to say, Zach, uh, make sure that you check your kids' candy uh, because you never know what people are going to stick in there. You may crack that candy bar apart uh, and find politics inside, and you don't want that getting all over everything. Yeah, I, I think this is a good topic for us to cover on this podcast because of statements that I see all the time, like, science fiction has always been political. Why are you whining about politics and stories? Stories have always been political. And I'm like, mm, really, is that true? Or is has something changed? And that's basically a gaslighting statement because we all know how things have become more political. And it's a question of how they've become political and why. Well, there's a semantic range in that word political or politics. And that leads me to our first concession. By the word politics here, we mean matters of public policy, actual law, judges' decisions, things that you ought to do or else get put in prison or pay a fine. That's the kind of politics we're talking about. Uh, And that involves morality, by the way. You don't get laws without morality, meaning that, yes, you absolutely can legislate morality. Uh, So when you mean that sci-fi has always been political, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean it's always advocated particular beliefs in politics or that science fiction has always been about people in a futuristic or technological society who have to get along with each other and compromise and fight one another uh, and broker agreements and legislate? Like in that way, of course, every story is going to be political because people are going to be political and stories are about people. Really, what the complaint is here is that modern science fiction and fantasy has become propaganda. It didn't always used to be propaganda. (laughs) Maybe there were political themes, but it was usually a lot more subtle or just more artistically done and more interesting. And now it's just barefaced messaging for political causes. Right. And that's more of the, we're talking nothing more of the secular sci-fi here and the other fantasy. There's some fantasy franchises that people feel have gone political now uh, or have gone political in a particular way. This episode isn't about that. It is a little bit more about how evangelicals are reacting to this thing in our culture. And by the phrase I use there, evangelical culture or evangelical popular culture, that's important to define. I'm thinking of an entire world of names and bands, shows, tapes, leaders, books, references, memes magazines, websites, like anything that evangelicals share that is popular and that counts as a work of culture. That's what I mean when I'm using that phrase. We've already gone over what we mean by politics. Uh, It's not just people and parties uh, and working or professional or rivalrous relationships among humans, which are always going to happen in this world. We're talking about specific policies and arguments about policy. Whose moral vision should influence the law. That's what we mean when we talk about politics. By the way, I'm not trying to be above it all in this uh, episode. If you saw my social media feed, uh, you would know that's not how I react to politics. Politics do matter a lot about Christians' witness in the world. We're supposed to do good in the world as much as we can uh, out of faithfulness to Christ and out of love for our neighbors. And that includes, I believe, applying significant influence to pressure in a representative republic Uh, leaders to pass and enforce good laws, not bad laws. In fact, I would disagree with people, uh, including some well-meaning Christian leaders, 
uh, who say uh, maybe the excesses, the same excesses that we're seeing among Christians who are just talking about politics all the time and won't shut up. Uh, they don't seem to uh, limit themselves or discipline themselves there. And these Christian leaders go, well, what's, what's, what's wrong? Why is everybody so much about politics? Like, it's not important. Uh, Zach, I saw a story the other day where I think the article itself was actually pretty fair, but uh, the headline of it seemed to imply, well, this, this election is not so important. Like, this is not the most important election of your lifetime. And I couldn't help but think of that from a fan perspective. I thought, okay, let's talk about a movie that's about to come out. Maybe it's that uh, delayed Superman movie that I've been waiting on since uh, 2016 or 2017 that we're going to get starring the now returned Henry Cavill, Restore the Snyderverse. Uh, maybe I'm really looking forward to that movie and it's just a movie. It's not as important as even politics, but let's say somebody comes along, a highfalutin Christian and says that that movie is not so important. Well, that would be rather dispiriting and uh, not really help all that much. Am I too excited about the movie? Maybe. Is your headline uh, going to make me feel judged instead of challenged? Probably. I think those kinds of headlines, that kind of rhetoric doesn't work. But at the same time, I also think that politics need to have their proper place. And that place is not king over all evangelical culture. So another addition to our concession stand is we try to avoid the three P's on this podcast. Those are politicians, political parties, and proposed policies. So we're not going to name check office holders, candidates. We're not campaigning for anyone here. We're not going to talk about specific parties and we're not going to talk about laws that are being proposed and debated in Congress and, and stuff like that. We are mostly talking about the moral ideas. And, you know, Stephen, I saw a really good uh, thread this week. I didn't agree with everything it said because it was mostly written from an atheist perspective, but it made this point that we don't have a divide right now between political parties, but between theocracies. Agreed. <laughs> 100% agreed. One, yes. one theocracy is largely derived from acknowledgement of God, whatever that means to people. And the other increasingly is largely derived from worship of sex and sexual identity. Yeah. And I, I started thinking about how true this is, that the big thing that's happening this week is the takeover of Twitter. And so a big topic people are talking about is censorship. So are you for or against censorship? Well, most people are against it, but the people that are for it you know, really when you dig into it, it's what they want is enforcement of blasphemy laws. <laughs> there are certain things you are not allowed to say because they go against uh, basically that religion. The second thing is, you know, cancellation. Should people be canceled and banned and not allowed in the public square? Well, really what this is, is kind of the social equivalent of burning people at the stake, <laughs> just removing them entirely from society. But besides what you're not allowed to say, there are things you're supposed to say and repeat. And this is kind of like recite this creed, repeat after me. So, you know, my argument with all of this is going beyond politics is looking at how we haven't become more secular in the West. We have actually become more religious, but it's becoming more pagan. When I say we, I just mean Western culture, because something is going to replace religion. When, when Christianity is on the decline, Something is going to become on the incline. A religion is going to come on the incline. And it's, it was just very fascinating. This atheist kind of saw this exact same thing, that people are always going to replace a religion with another religion. And so, yes, politics becomes a religion, but it's also interesting to look at how politics is sort of the outgrowth of this pagan corptocracy, pharmatocracy, whatever you want to call it. At the same time, there's elements of Marxism and other isms. Like, I, I don't even know what to call this new movement that's happening. 
but it's a theocracy. That's the easiest way to put it. Right. And so it's not a matter of one theocracy versus just a neutral movement or a secular space. I, I think some of those ideas uh, are finally showing themselves to be unhelpful. And I'll move away from that a little bit uh, more about those issues. We could refer you to another great uh, podcast or two or several uh, that have thoughtful biblical Christians interacting with these ideas. Uh, Al Mohler is a pretty solid voice on these kinds of things, keeping up with the current events and proposed legislation and leaders and things that we don't talk about, not because we think that those are bad, but just because we want to maintain our focus. We have uh, a censorship, I suppose, uh, just because we're trying to self-censor ourselves, uh, not because we think those things are wrong. We want to focus on imagination, but imagination will touch on politics, so that's why we're going here. Uh, Zach, you mentioned the worship of sex, uh, the, what I call sexualityism, if it's a religion. Uh, or a new phrase I've picked up, uh, sexual imperialism, when you're talking about people who are trying to pass this religion into law. Uh, they're trying to, in my view, violate the First Amendment by establishing this religion uh, in the United States. And although I'll try to avoid talking about policies and those things on this show and at Lorehaven, uh, that I think is an exception because now we're on the ground that's closer to where Lorehaven is. Now we're talking about religion. Uh, we're talking about religious freedom. Uh, we're talking about things that are very close to the heart of the human imagination, which is who am I? What am I supposed to do? What is my calling? How do I see the world? Like all of these are uh, a social imaginary as uh, I believe one philosopher put it. And so that's why we're here. Uh, that's why we're talking about it. And that's why uh, in my own discussions about political issues, generally I'm focusing on a trio that I would call uh, my top issue. Like my, I'm a single issue voter now. But those are actually uh, a, a trinity of issues, and I'll get into that later. I don't think we can ignore those issues. Uh, it's a reality of our world, and good fantasy is about uh, enhancing our view of that reality, not ignoring it. Uh, if we ignore these issues that threaten the very gospel, that threaten the very souls of man, uh, then we're lying to ourselves. And I will contend that these are not political conflicts, but religious conflicts. Uh, if people are attacking religious freedom, human life, and family structures, uh, that's, my, uh, that's my trinity there, single issue vote. They're not political, but religious conflicts. However, if everything is about politics, then nothing is. I don't think politics should be totalizing like it is. And one key point I'm going to hit on in our three chapters here is that one reason why it's so dangerous to have politics take over evangelical culture is that it leaves us no space for rest. Uh, some of these fads we're going to talk about, um, I may not uh, like them very much. I may not care for the adult coloring books or the afterlife books that we had in the 2010s, but at least they were talking about rest. If it's a little boy come back from heaven, you're thinking about eternal rest. If it's a coloring book, that is at least a restful activity. But if you're only talking about politics in your culture, then you are insisting to yourself I should be a culture workaholic. I should be a culture warrior who is full-time 24-7. But God, even in a groaning sinful world, has commanded us to rest. And reading and imagination are part of that. So once again, that's why we're here. Final concession for me. Uh, hey, you're going to find probably uh, hear about an old favorite uh, evangelical fandom of yours in this episode. So we're going to help you rest by taking a trip back in time across the decades, at least in chapter one, before we get to the politics. Uh, once upon a time, things were a little different. Christians were crazed about other things, at least in the United States and in evangelical culture. Uh, it's going to be fun. Uh, and then finally, uh, Zach and I last touched on politics slash imagination and the intersections of these 
uh, way back in our episode 40 of this podcast. But we were talking more about how stories shape our views of politics, not just issues, but how people ought to do politics. Uh, it's a great uh, way to explore that topic and something that we won't talk about here, but we're going to build on that episode's foundation. Yeah, the final thing I'll say for here is you mentioned a really key word, which is totalizing. And I think that's exactly the problem that's happened nowadays is that politics has become totalizing. There's another phrase that crops up all the time. Well, the personal is political. No, it's not. And it doesn't have to be. And it shouldn't be. You should have a personal life that is devoid of politics. You should have relationships and conversations with people that aren't political. If everything is political, then you don't have a life anymore. And that's this weird adherence to some totalitarian religion of this uh, new pagan order, basically. Zach, I almost want to repeat my point from our last episode about the Nephilim in that uh, even though the Nephilim are relegated to four or six verses in the Bible, not including anything else going on in the book of Enoch, uh, supposedly, it's a fringe issue. It's not something that should become for the Christian totalizing. I think politics matter way more than Nephilim, but I don't think that issue should become totalizing either. The heart of scripture is the gospel. The heart of scripture is finding rest in Christ, but also working to spread his gospel and herald the coming reclamation of creation. That is the Christian's goal. Our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, not just change the world. If you're always world building with politics, you're never going to get to rest and do other essential work in that world, borrowing the language of the fantasy or fiction creator. That's why we want to be very careful in saying that, yes, politics matters, but not so much that it needs to be king. If we're ready, then let's move to chapter one, going back in time for this. How did Christian fads create political obsessions? And I'm going to base this on an article I wrote actually about a couple of years ago uh, that we'll be referring to here and there. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, I took a tour, at least based on memory. Uh, going back to about the 1970s, which is before I was born. I'm just borrowing from uh, some uh, research there, trying to determine in general uh, what were the evangelical fads across the decades. And uh, I go into more detail in the article, but just to recap here, generally from what I see in the 1970s, you had the Jesus movement. Uh, you had uh, kind of the the afterglow of the 60s there uh, with kind of the, the counterculture. You had some Christian hippies running around. Uh, you had some uh, fun, uh, crazy, but uh, apparently very faithful uh, pastor preacher types in California and other places. Uh, for some reason, I'm thinking of big wooden crosses hanging around necks. I think the necklines are going pretty low there for the dudes. Lots of chest hair going on, uh, as well as some uh, religious fervor, uh, certainly in the United States. Uh, there's actually a movie coming out about that, uh, which should be very interesting. I'm kind of uh, keeping track of that one in case it turns out to be one of the good Christian movies. Of course, you had some early Christian uh, rock and roll, some Christian pop music uh, going on there, kind of the precursor to Christian contemporary music, and some early end time speculations. Uh, Hal Lindsey got that started uh, with the book The Late Great Planet Earth and kind of kicked off uh, several decades of uh, evangelical interest in prophecy and what might happen to the United States when the Antichrist got here and whether or not there was going to be a rapture first. And some of that is still going on and changed forms over the next couple of decades or so. Zach, I don't think you were living in the 1970s, but do you have any impressions of this era? Well, I was born in the very end of the 70s decade. You know, I wasn't really um, immersed in Christian subculture uh, until the late 90s. 
So I missed a lot of this stuff, but then I started kind of going back in time and exploring and a lot of it. up, yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, the Jesus movement really fascinates me. A lot of this was in response to, I guess, the 60s and 70s, like hippie communist movements or whatever in, in secular culture. Yeah, student activism and all of that yeah. stuff, yes. And uh, there's this great story I love of Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. He went into one of these student Marxist meetings and he said, you know, the problem is you are not revolutionary enough. <laughs> you want this big revolution for society, but what are you going to do about the problem of human sin? How are you going to solve that? You, you can change all these structures to be more equitable or whatever, but how are you going to change people to be more fair and more loving and more honest? And you have to have an inner revolution. It was really interesting how he kind of took on that social movement and said, well, I see what you're trying to do, but you're never going to accomplish it. Uh, through this, especially through this, you know, aggressive kind of action, because what you need is an inner transformation, an inner revolution. And there were some really interesting uh, Christian trends that came after that. Just, uh, yeah, you, you've mentioned the um, kind of the Christian rock and roll that spawned out of that, uh, these big prayer movements. Um, I think Calvary Chapel came out yes, of that. Yes, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a very strong denomination, if you can call it that on the West coast in particular, and it's, it's spread elsewhere. I think Christians had some very unique responses to that sort of cultural revolution of the time. One of these days, if we can get it to fit with the fantastical emphasis that we might get our friend, uh, Mike Duran back on here, because he was affected by a lot of this uh, Christian activity going on, especially in the West coast area. So uh, he might know some about that uh, from more of a, a close perspective there. Zach, I'm seeing a young anime man uh, looking at a butterfly and asking, is this Christian nationalism? Is Bill Bright a Christian nationalist? Because he goes into this uh, circle of revolutionaries and says, hey, what about the problem of human sin that doesn't just come from institutions and societies because we live in a society, but you've got a heart problem going on there. Uh, is that political? Yeah, kind of. If you're talking about political, meaning how humans deal with each other and about morality. Uh, is it specifically public platforms, uh, political policies? No, uh, that's the kind of thing Christians are going to do. It's going to interface with what people would call politics here and there. But that's mainly because politics or political movements encroach upon uh, moral uh, spheres, uh, encroach upon religious spheres. So you had that going on. And this led, uh, I would say, the 1980s, a decade I'm a little bit more familiar with, even though I also had to do some catch up for what I missed, even while I was technically alive. Uh, interestingly, the 80s had some more end time stuff going on, uh, certainly leading up to 1988, which, by the way, was the uh, there was a day there was a rapture in 1988. And we all got left behind uh, and the ending of the tribulation has been postponed um, or instead, maybe that guy was wrong uh, and he was blowing hot air. Uh, so the rapture didn't happen then. Uh, it wasn't a spiritual return, anything like that. But you still had some end time stuff going on. So that was a bit of a fad. You certainly had more contemporary Christian music going on and that picked up. You had the invention of the cassette player and more Christian FM radio stations. The stuff starts spreading more. I'm definitely generalizing here, a uh, 10,000 foot view. Uh, kids audio and video series got started because you also had the invention of the video cassette. Uh, Zach, you and I have talked about this in our episode about movie theaters and how you got your TV shows back then as now. It's all streaming now, but back then you had to wait for stuff to come on TV or be put out in the movie theaters. But now Christians and others with lower budgets and ministry overhead could put stuff out on cassette tapes or videotapes. And you got focus on the family doing that stuff. That's when the Adventures in Odyssey audio drama got started in the late 80s. 
And then, of course, you had spiritual warfare novels. Uh, the Christian bookstore industry and the book industry had been building since uh, really the 50s and 60s. Uh, Thomas Simstad has a great episode about that, uh, the history of how Christian bookstores got started. Uh, Frank Peretti took over uh, accidentally with his spiritual warfare books. Spiritual warfare was a big trend in the 80s. Uh, going into the 90s, not just in fiction, but people trying to figure out where the demons were and how exactly you were to get rid of them. And they got into some spooky stuff there. Uh, we'll do some other episodes about that some other time. People taking back territories and things like that uh, got a little mystical for a while. Some of that, I'd say, carried over into the 1990s, a decade I followed more uh, closely. I was more aware of those things. Uh, you had an angel fad in the 1990s. There was a TV show touched by an angel, and the Christian pastors were responding to this and writing books about angels. Lots of people curious about angels. End times kept going. Uh, the first Left Behind book arrived in 1995, uh, and then that kind of uh, fed off of the Y2K fears. There were some apocalyptic fears uh, with the newest version of the Christian and other end times uh, concerns going on there trying to be careful here uh, supposedly all the computers were going to stop working because they didn't know the difference from the uh, two-digit year 99 and the two-digit year 00 was just going to drive the computers out of their minds and then elevators were going to drop in the elevator shafts that didn't happen i was there uh it didn't happen my dad snuck downstairs and flipped off the circuit breaker and it made our evening while we thought it's true all of it's yes. true i may uh, have played that prank myself at a party <laughs> yes i'm sure somebody did uh and thereby won all of the y2k uh uh points there uh the one thing though i will note zach and uh, you may remember this too is that in nine in the, in the 1990s the politics uh really i think started uh, get, getting going here and that was because uh, you'd had the reagan uh, election in uh, 1980 through 1988 and then his vice president, uh, George Bush, not W. Bush, he was from 88 to 1992. He then lost to Bill Clinton, who now seems rather a, you know, a moderate sort of guy. I'm just naming history names here, folks, uh, not talking about uh, the personality so much. But Christians responded to this with many, many concerns. And so I think people started putting more resources into politically conservative uh, resources uh, like radio and books and articles and things. You had some early Internet. Uh, I think this is important to note that really, I think the modern version of the Christian uh, nomination of politics as their cultural king uh, got started in the late 80s and in the 1990s. Yeah, I, I look back on the last you know 40 years, and I think there's a few overarching trends that have caused our modern day obsession with politics. Uh, I think you've done a great job covering how the kind of Christian subculture has evolved and changed. I want to actually poke one thing in the middle there, which was after 9-11, I remember the talk at my church at the time was, you know, is this the beginning of the end for America? Is this how America gets removed from the world stage uh, before the tribulation? Oh, yeah. Because, That's the 2000s. Because, yeah. Yeah. Because we don't really see America in the end times and Revelation, at least, unless you think there's a mention of an eagle and that has to be. Oh, I've America. heard that one. Yeah. It's yeah. a bit of a stretch there. Yeah. And so uh, I think this caused different reactions in people. One of them was, well, we need to fight to keep America, you know, relevant or, or else just give up and go to do other things. But I think over the last 40 years, we've seen a couple of trends. One is the trend of pragmatism. And this, uh, I, I think is really the monster that feeds a lot of other things. Uh, when pragmatism just gets assumed and then a lot of things sneak in, 
But secondly, I think too, it, that can sometimes be a response to how culture is becoming more hostile to Christianity. We've all seen different ways that, again, this new pagan world order has come on the rise. And a lot of Christians correctly identify that this is a this is a religious opponent that's happening. And so what, you know, what about our faith and our family? We still get to have freedom to practice what we believe in public and not just in private. But then thirdly, I think a lot of Christians have lost faith in the gospel to change lives and society. You know, I mentioned Bill Bright back in the 60s confronting this Marxist movement and saying, and not confronting them with how Marxism is wrong, but how it's incomplete and insufficient to actually bring about the changes that, you know, some good changes that they want to see. Of course, there are some bad changes that they want to see, but how it's insufficient and the gospel is sufficient. Like the gospel is what changes lives and society. And I think we've seen a drift away from this today, both by social justice Christians and MAGA Christians who want to change all of society through a very narrow set of political convictions. And I, I think we're undergoing a, another split within the evangelical church right now that was similar to the divide in the um, early 1900s over the social gospel. And that's how we got sort of the mainstream denominations and the fundamentalists and then the fundamentalists kind of split with evangelicals. Anyway, we're not the Christian history podcast, but <laughs> go find that elsewhere. But I think we are undergoing a similar split today. There are Christians that are wanting to hang on to power, whether that is through uh, the sort of political establishment or whether that is through sort of the underdog, outsider, challenger, champion kind of figure. Because we, we all see how Christianity is losing influence in society. So how do we respond to that? And I, I think politics is a big way people respond to that to try to keep Christianity relevant. And again, I, I think this same impulse is happening on the left and the right. Yeah, and a lot of it got its start uh, over the last 40 years, really is the time span we're talking about here. But over the last 20 years, uh, it really stepped up. Uh, Zach mentioned uh, September 11th. Uh, that really uh, upgraded uh, the Christian end times concern uh, to yet another level. Uh, we still have the Left Behind series going on. And by the way, regularly hitting the New York Times bestseller charts uh, completely unparalleled phenomenon there for a Christian-made fiction from a Christian publisher. Uh, that kept going, and then September 11 happened in 2001, and then, like you said, Zach, everybody starts wondering uh, about uh, other religions like Islam and militant Islam and things. Uh, you had some other trends in the 2000s as well, though. Uh, some of the Promise Keepers uh, stuff was uh, still uh, carrying forward from the 90s. I remember there was a, for a while a big resource called Wild at Heart. Uh, man got a men up. Men have to go out in the woods and roll around without their shirts in the mud and hunt moose and things. And that was kind of uh, the stereotype <laughs> there. But frankly, it was an earned stereotype. It oh, was some I, folks I'd, with daddy issues trying to figure things out. I jumped out of an airplane because of that book. You know, I never Great. knew you jumped out of an airplane yep. because Perfectly of Wild airplane. at Heart. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Did you land in a cow pie and then, uh, you know, do some male bonding rituals in the woods with sticks or what? That's, uh, yeah, it, it got a little, uh, wild indeed there. Men got yeah. wild, you know? Yeah. There was some of the roots of, uh, some of the Driscollism, uh, going on back there with, uh, mm -hmm. you know, preachers cussing and wearing motorcycle jackets and things like that. Uh, got started in the two thousands. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm not ready for two thousands nostalgia. Uh, I really don't want any of that. 
I think any time will be too soon for that. It, it was just, it was kind of blah, frankly. I mean, you know, I had to go to college and everything. It was, it was messed up. Uh, so that was the 2000s. And then, yeah, Zach, I think you really captured um, how Christians were feeling and the pragmatism that was still going on there. By the way, when we say pragmatism, we just mean, hey, whatever works, uh, whatever works right. to get people in the church, you know, some ministry philosophies, you might call it seeker friendly, but there's some other versions of that. Whatever works to meet people's felt need, and then maybe I can meet their real need, which is Jesus. On the one level, I can get that, uh, but on another level, are you not then endorsing the thing that wasn't it Bill Bright said not to endorse in his famous, uh, wasn't his famous Four Spiritual Laws tract? Self is on the throne, interests are disordered. Very simple drawings, but you see all these uh, blobby circles around the self on the throne. Interests are disordered. Now, what an amazing way to think about things like imagination and hobbies and fandoms. If self is on the throne, then you are violating the rules of the world that God has built. Whereas when Christ is on the throne and you're before him, all of your interests are now rightfully ordered. You're not just doing them for your own sake, but you're doing them for his sake, according to the terms of service uh, that the creator of the universe has given to us. So we really need to give props to uh, the ministry formerly known as Campus Crusade there for putting that meme into evangelical culture, which, by the way, helped to get a lot of people saved. Like there were some genuine revivals all throughout all these decades. You had people with some interesting fandoms and certainly some more political obsessions uh, growing over time. But the gospel was still going forth. The gates of hell did not prevail against it. Not even in the 2010s, the last decade uh, we'll cover here. I've already mentioned the coloring book. So we had kind of a few evangelical trends that I can remember. Uh, the devotional Jesus Calling was running around and uh, causing some controversy there. And then I think you really had the growth of uh, Christian movies then, Zach. You had uh, the Kendrick Brothers doing some stuff. You had more uh, success with theatrical releases of Christian movies. And then, of course, in the late 2010s, you really have the growth of streaming services. Guys, this is like barely 10 years old, uh, getting all your video over a streaming service. It's really quite extraordinary. Uh, again, then you had the uh, the cheaper ability for Christians to share their ideas over streaming now, uh, not just uh, video cassettes and audio cassettes and things. But I think by that point, politics were really taking over. Um, I don't remember any of these trends. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm getting older or in a different church type environment, but I don't remember any of these trends being nearly as big as uh, the spiritual warfare or even the angels of the 90s like coloring books were uh, even more flash in the pan than those things i think jesus calling is still a big empire but that may be the biggest the longest lasting trend going on now and of course we still got some christian movies running around the, especially the social dramas but i'll argue in the chapter two that we really are uh, moving full on into politics as the king influence in evangelical popular culture uh, blotting out everything else yeah, I remember in the late 2000s, there were several pro-life Christian movies, and that has continued till today. And that is another subgenre of Christian stories that I, I think are actually pretty well done. And it addresses those political issues, but from the heart, from a more personal, emotional, and even theological perspective, rather than just here are all the laws that we should change. It, it's more of a kind of a moral vision approach. But going back to what you said a minute ago about pragmatism, so I think it's always good to acknowledge and even try to meet people's needs. I mean, we see Jesus doing this and healing people, feeding people, casting out demons. 
but it never was the point. You know, the point was preaching the gospel. And that's what he said. This is why I came into the world to declare the gospel. It's the gospel that saves people. Meeting their needs, whatever they are, is not a bad thing, but that is not the ultimate thing. What a lot of churches and Christians have done is have sort of put the political needs ahead of the spiritual needs. And I, I think that's really what we're getting to. It's one thing to meet someone's felt needs. It's another thing to sort of embrace idols. A big idol I think we hear today is respectability. You know, we need to be respectable. And the, the term we usually hear is public witness. We need to have a good public witness. Well, okay, we need to be above reproach. That's what the Bible says. But we are not going to be respected by a culture or by people that hate God. Like they're just not going to respect us. There's always going to be people that hate Christians. And I think there's sort of this obsession with, well, we got to have people like us. Jesus wasn't liked by everyone. You know, why, why should we think we're going to be liked by everyone? And so I, I think a better approach is it's uh, Tim Muehlhoff and another person have kind of coined this phrase, winsome conviction. And, and their point is, yes, you, you can speak truth in love. Uh, and oftentimes the, the, the real problem is people are not truthful enough. They don't have enough conviction. And so they get in these political brawls because they don't even really know what they believe and why. I prefer the term just gentle honesty anyway. But yes, we speak the truth in love. We stand up for what we believe, but we have to accept that not everyone's going to like it. Yeah, I'm indifferent to whether the world likes us. I find statements like that uh, overgeneralized and unhelpful. What do you mean by the world? Like all many billions of people out there? Like who are we really talking about here? I think that that's an imaginative construct uh, to portray your immediate circle of friends or the people over whom you have influence if you're a church uh, influencer. Uh, it's generally folks on uh, the social medias that we hear about, maybe some sermons or articles or podcasts here and there that are talking about winsomeness. Uh, this seems to be the latest uh, um, kind of a fad among some of the Christian intelligentsia or sorts, uh, and I, I want to respect them, but I also find yet another shade of that pragmatism you talked about, Zach, the ministry pragmatism. I, when I hear winsome, I think, well, who, 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 are you trying to win some souls this way? Wins, you know, it's a pun, but it's you also, some, you lose some. <laughs> right. Well, it's also <laughs> pragmatism. You know, the assumption yeah. there is that my chief end is evangelism. Like I need to do uh, some public relations cleanup for the church, which has been mm. really nasty these days. And people have been really put off by their intolerance and their bigotry and their compromise with politics. So I'm going to be the cleanup crew. I'm going to be the good cop. Uh, I'm going yeah. to win some souls. Uh, Jesus by needs better PR, out. and I'm yeah. going to bring it. Yeah, and I, I really, I really see the possibility here, and I've mentioned this that this is projection, uh, especially if someone is a, an evangelical influencer who has been behind the scenes, who has seen how the sausage gets made, and so that is their impression of the church. Again, overgeneralized term, uh, a industry that there may be actual Christians, but they're certainly not above using Christianity to sell stuff. And so that's why you have, I think, some pundits and even some uh, Christian creators, uh, musicians and storytellers climbing on board because this is their experience with what they would call evangelical culture. I think if they'd gotten their start in secular culture, uh, they might be behaving like some secular celebrities now and uh, turning Christian or seeming to turn Christian. Uh, I hope their conversions will hold, but it looks like they're, those people from the other side are getting into some crazy stuff. Because to them, they've seen behind the scenes how the secular sausage gets made, and they want to get away from that. 
So it's not a problem uh, that the evangelicals have with the church back home. Uh, the secular stars are having problems uh, with the studios back home. Uh, that's full of manipulative people and folks just out to make a buck and use my talents for uh, their own sake. Yeah, this gets a little afield, uh, but I think that that is uh, some of the rhetoric that we're seeing that's part of politics reigning over evangelical culture is folks using politics as a language for the personal. Uh, I don't think it's actually about, for example, uh, illegal immigration and the wall for people. I think the wall is a symbol uh, for a lot of folks who think they're talking about issues but are really talking about themselves. Do I feel more like this imaginative figure in that scenario or the other figure? Am I outside the wall trying to get in or am I inside the wall trying to keep the baddies out? It's not about policy there. Uh, it's about imagination. And I think it's better than just to say that it's about imagination. And yeah, talk about the policy sometime, although not on this podcast, uh, but just keep honest about what we're really talking about here. And that's what we're going to do in chapter two. But first, let's stop by our second sponsor for this episode. It's another one from Mountain Brook Fire. And this is the Chase Runner series by Bradley Caffey. Very energetic name there. This is a dystopian series uh, from the author, and it starts with book one, The Chase. It's a complete trilogy, though. The Chase describes itself as win the chase, be the hero, or die trying. Every year, the 12 alliances of the World Coalition gather to compete in the chase. The prize? A chance to pass exactly one new law. Willis and Perrin are opposites. One is a pedigreed top trainee, the other a struggling leader on a team set up for failure. But when a racer from the outside world upends everything they knew, Willis and Perrin find themselves racing together with the peaceful World Coalition hot on their tail. Visit the links in the show notes to buy your copy of The Chase by Bradley Caffey, the first in the Chase Runner series. It's at Amazon, Christian Books, Barnes & Noble. There are print and audio editions for the Chase Runner series from other Bradley Caffey. All right, let's run into chapter two of this very important discussion. How does politics reign over evangelical cultures? Zach, we've already alluded to this a little bit, is that there's different visions, even among well-meaning Christians uh, that are cast under politics. Uh, I think we're switching, actually, uh, between decades. We, we've, we've had a few kings in the line of succession here. If politics are reigning over our culture, We've had a few different monarchs going on. In the 2000s, for example, the main political consideration for a lot of uh, Christians was terrorism uh, and concerns over militant Islam. And then in the 2010s, I would say uh, it was a little bit more about uh, race issues, frankly, uh, ethnicity, unfairness, uh, things like that. Uh, how or whether should these be addressed by law, stuff beyond our scope here. Uh, we had some confusion over how Christians should respond to this. Now, I think uh, we're seeing, for example, Christian-Muslim team-ups at uh, school board meetings. Uh, there's some stuff going on in Michigan because they were together being opposed to some uh, particularly sensitive materials that the schools wanted to have for the kids. Uh, what happened? Uh, how are Christians teaming up with folks from another religion? Uh, it's the sexualityism religion. I think that that's what's framing uh, our cultural discussion now, uh, that really is the, the next battle and I think is the reigning influence over how we are dealing with politics now. Yes, this has been one of the most uh, interesting and surprising things of the 2020s is seeing Christians and Muslims lock arms together and battle against this uh, 
weird pagan religion that's taken over society. And but it's also happened in other countries uh, in in China, which is run by an atheist communist system that's extremely oppressive. There are uh, Christians in underground churches coming alongside at times of the Uyghur Muslims who are also being oppressed by this uh, communist system. And so it's it's very fascinating to me how we have a lot in common sometimes with Muslims who share a lot of our same moral concerns and just the concern of, I want to practice my religion freely. And yes, I've made some allies of my own in the Muslim community, and I'm very thankful for them. Uh, so if any of y'all are listening, uh, I appreciate you guys, and I look forward to our friendships. But Steve and I, I love the period of time we're in because it's so surprising. Well, this is also an amazing way to do ministry, right? I mean, if you're talking about public witness, like how much better of a chance could you have so long as you understand that this is a person from another religion who is probably worshiping another God, another version of God that is not God as we understand him fully revealed in Jesus Christ, who is himself fully God and fully man. That's a big difference between Christians and Muslims, as well as folks from other religions. If you understand the differences, then oughtn't you be able to do team-ups like that? Okay, on this one issue, we are united, we can team up. And what an opportunity then to build bridges, to be winsome, uh, even as you are working in culture, uh, to oppose the advance of sexualityism, candidates and policies. Uh, This ought to be a tremendous opportunity for Christians, and yet some Christian leaders seem to be completely unaware that sexualityism is a thing. They seem to think that it's some weirdos on TikTok, and that's about it. I would go there, but we need to move on. Uh, More candidates now uh, are not just talking about uh, things that I think Christians can disagree about, like taxes and borders and tariffs and all that stuff that, frankly, increasingly uh, bores me. Uh, and I just don't have the time to get into it. Uh, but I'm also just want to keep the main thing, the main thing. And right now, that's my personal trinity of a single issue. I vote based on this single issue, uh, which is the defense of religious liberty, uh, the defense of human life, and the defense of the human family. All of these, by the way, are institutions created by God going all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible. It's implicit, if not explicit there whereas all the other stuff is really, really secondary. And in my view, Zach, and I I would dare to say this, I think there's only one Christian view uh, on this trio of issues. And I think that Christians can and should unite uh, with folks who are even not Christians uh, in order to love their neighbors and do good in the world, in order to do good world building through political engagement. So Am I defending the reigning champ then? Am I defending politics for bossing all of evangelical culture just because it seems to be uh, a little bit more clear cut now? No, uh, I don't uh, I don't think so. And I'll get to that in number three here. Right now, I'm just trying to be more positive about it. I mean, I don't want this to be, like we said earlier, totalizing, uh, but at least it's uh, it seems to be a little better now, a little bit more focused on the fundamentals of humanity rather than just yelling at each other as if there's only one Christian belief about tax policy. Yeah, I may have told this story before, but in college, I had a professor that grew up in Normandy, France during World War II. And his father had moved their family to actually very close to the beach because he thought there's no way the Allies will try to go into France through Normandy Beach. Well, of course, he was wrong. So then they had to flee when the invasion happened. And they they got to this town A little while later, a German train got stuck in this town. It broke down and all of the citizens of this village came out to try to get the train moving again. 
Uh, even though they're French, like they did not want this German train to be stuck there. Well, why? Because they knew the Allies were going to bomb it. And of course, that would destroy their town. So they came out to help the Germans. These uh, French resistance fighters came out of the woods to help the German soldiers. <laughs> they're all on the same side because there was this existential threat coming from the American bombs, which again, the, the French resistance, they're on the side of the Americans, but they don't want to see their town get destroyed. And then they got the train fix. It went on its way and everyone just kind of backed away slowly <laughs> and kind of kept the peace. Uh, and then a few miles later, the train was bombed. <laughs> but uh, he told that story and I, I've always thought about it, that there are times where we do have to team up with people that we are at odds with for legitimate reasons, but because there's an existential threat. And I think that is what a lot of Christians have seen. And I think the reason we have felt that and the reason we're making these alliances is because so many politicians have backed away from the label of socially conservative. They're like, well, I'm fiscally conservative, but I'm not conservative socially. And I think it's the social issues that are oftentimes the number one issue for a lot of Christians. Uh, maybe the economic issues as well. I'm not going to downplay that. But I think a lot of Christians have been very dismayed the last 10 years of how many politicians have backed away from the social issues as though those have no impact on your lives. I think there's often a gap here. MLK was famous for saying, a law can't make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty good. <laughs> so he, he made a great point is that we do need laws that protect our natural rights. We do need laws that conform to God's laws. But MLK was also right that those laws can't make people love one another. And this is where we get into 1 Corinthians 13, that, you know, what good is all the good that we do if there's no love? Like if there's no love, this is just a clanging gong. So back to, again, that is where we need the gospel. That is where we need Christian stories to help people understand the gospel and to help them put the gospel into practice in their life. Amen to that. And we're going to get into that more in chapter three. I think I would say that uh, this latest iteration of the politics king and evangelical culture uh, is more based on life and family and religious liberty. Uh, it's a little bit closer to my trio of issues there. Whereas before, and not in a sequential order, uh, but it's been based on prophecy and you know, end times expectations, uh, national security, uh, certainly some concern about uh, life. I mean, that's not new. It's been going on since 1973, if not earlier. Uh, certainly had a big uh, victory on that front this year, but it ain't over yet, folks. In the 2000s or early 2010s, you had a lot more uh, discussion about racism and any of the remnants from that particular evil notion about other human beings. But now, yeah, it's a, it's a lot more about these issues. These issues for a lot more people seem more fundamental. And so we're not just talking about human laws. Uh, we're not talking about tariffs and borders and taxes and whether or not you should declare war on so-and-so or act like you declare war or whatever. It's more about natural law. You, you've got certain people with political power and cultural power. And we're not just saying, well, the taxes should be at this rate if you earn so-and-so much of money. Uh, it's specifically attacking the nature of human beings. If you imagine yourself to be something you are not, then everyone ought to respond according to uh, your imagination. People are now trying to legislate a, a moral imagination that is simply false, that is simply false. And it's not inevitable, by the way. 
folks act like it is because it's a big uh, power game. It's a giant bluff and it's not inevitable. If people go with their instincts and go with whatever their true or false religion has told them that is true about human nature, then you can defeat this thing. Uh, and I think this thing must be defeated. But is that should uh, should that be the only thing we talk about as Christians? Uh, should that be uh, even that very important issue be the king of all of our evangelical culture? Uh, just like we had, uh, you know, anti-Clintonism or support for the war in Iraq uh, being uh, part of the king of evangelical culture before. I don't think that should be the king. Uh, that should not be uh, the totalizing influence over all of our evangelical culture. And Zach, you mentioned that earlier, how much more we need stories to deal with these issues of the heart and the imagination. Good laws, yes, but stories help to change hearts. The gospel is what changes hearts, but stories can point to the gospel uh, in a way that will, to borrow Lewis's phrase again, slip past those watchful political dragons who stand guard uh, someone puts them uh, at the entrance to the heart and says, no politics allowed or no political uh, persuasion that sounds like this allowed. Well, a story that is smart and wise and truly compassionate about these things and that can get the, to the heart of the issue without just talking about politics and candidates, uh, the story can go places that the politics can't. Do the, uh, the movers and shakers of a conservative evangelical culture understand that? Until very recently, I don't think they have. Only a few Christians have emphasized the need to invest in stories and not just politics. So we'll get to that in chapter three. Let's stop by sponsor three for this episode, which is not political at all. However, it does have a man in armor shooting guns at monsters. So you can read a metaphor into that if you like. It's David Umstead, the author of The Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded. As we know, Pilgrim's Progress is a classic story of redemption, allegory, and theological poignance that has profoundly impacted millions of readers over three centuries and changed the landscape of English literature forever. It's also a story with a total lack of robots, space marines, or talking platypuses. So we fixed that. You're welcome. Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded is a narrative podcast you can listen to on the podcast app you're using right now. Just search for Pilgrim's Progress Reloaded to start listening for free. You can get the links in our show notes or at lorehaven.com slash podcast sponsors. Zach, yeah, this is not a political book, but I do note that when you're talking about Pilgrim's Progress, you're talking about someone, uh, John Bunyan, who was in the throes of political clashes back then with kings and Protestants and Catholics and Anglicans and everybody just mixing it up there in merry old England and putting each other in the stocks. He wrote a story uh, that may not be as famous now as it once was, but it has endured over three centuries a lot longer than any of those uh, political conflicts. So thank God for John Bunyan. Uh, definitely a rough start there and very allegorical to a fault often, but uh, he had some foresight to actually create a thing that wasn't just a political policy position for his limited era. We might even say that John Bunyan invested in stories, not just politics, which is the title of our third chapter of this discussion. Zach, I will need to hold me back here because I get pretty passionate about this one. I actually wrote a whole article about it. I'm just going to hit on the high points there as we move forward. Yeah. And I would just say it's so important that we focus on stories because with this topic of politics, we have to keep a perspective. Politics is downstream from culture and culture is shaped by stories. And I can think of so many stories as we're talking right now that have shaped my view of politics. But those stories stay with me. I, I don't remember, you know, political campaigns or slogans or whatever. Earlier in the podcast, Stephen, you mentioned how 
there's always this phrase of, oh, this is the most important election ever. And I think we're all so sick of that phrase uh, because every election has consequences for the next few years. So it it is kind of the most important one. I mean, it's not like the election 20 years ago matters as much as the one now because now I can vote, whatever. But yes, we have to pay attention to how our moral imagination is shaped by stories and by producing and promoting other good stories. You know, I don't actually hate that phrase. It's the most important election ever. And I wish people would stop picking at it. But I, but I think it's also just kind of corny. It's like saying today is the first day of the rest of your life. Right. You know? it's, like, it's a, yeah. I mean, the past, you know, you only have the present, you know, the future lies ahead and, you know, motivational poster stuff. Uh, it's not exactly harmful. It just can get a little annoying through the repetition. Uh, the previous elections aren't as important because they're in the past. Uh, their uh, results are locked in. Uh, you can't go back there, uh, probably not even with a time machine, because I don't think time travel would allow that. You'd create a paradox and everything would fall apart, or else you would just align with the results you've already experienced in your present. Uh, you can't get paradoxes. Uh, God is the only Lord of time, and he's limited us to the present, so our decisions in the present matter. But at the same time, I think we can go back and look at what Christians have decided in the past, even though it's locked in, and we can ask, um, could we have done better? Uh, are there some other decisions we could have made of voting, as it were, in how to invest our time and resources? Should we have put everything into politics or should we have held some resources back, uh, certainly with our time as story fans? Uh, but maybe the folks running the publishing companies or the websites uh, or, you know, a Christian millionaire who's thinking, you know, should I give some money to candidate X this year? Or should I send it to that ministry uh, that's been running that audio drama for the kids since 1987? You know, just an example off the top of my head, uh, Focus on the Family seems to be doing well. But one thing that I appreciate about Focus on the Family is that, but for some exceptions before, I, I don't associate them with political positions. Like They're doing family stuff. They're focusing on the family. And yes, the family is under attack, uh, but they seem to be maintaining their focus. Uh, and they have put resources and a lot of other ministries and companies have put resources into not just Christian entertainment, uh, but stories, recreation, you know, publishing companies and several publishing companies. We know uh, even some who sponsor this show have been doing that. It takes money and talent and resources and networking and frankly, a lot of angst to invest in these things. And so nothing here is meant to question that. Uh, and if anything, it's to support our gratitude for folks who are working so hard to bring us these stories. And often, by the way, you know, I haven't seen anybody's books, uh, but I know that it's, uh, it's at a loss sometimes for folks. You know, this is not really profitable to make uh, Christian-made fantasy or even just Christian fiction. I'm sure some of it runs away and gets on the bestseller lists, uh, but others take some time. Imagine, though, an Earth 2 version of evangelical culture uh, where Christians stayed politically involved, yes, but uh, maybe they built on the success of the Left Behind series. Uh, they built more fiction that wasn't just about end times and maybe sent some folks out to the churches uh, or had some uh, agents, as it were. You know, it'd be nice if we had podcasts earlier. You know, maybe we could seed the uh, churches with these ideas that here's here's why we enjoy fiction you know it's not just because it's gonna kind of maybe predict the future uh or give us a good feeling about angels in heaven with the little boys uh maybe we need other kinds of stories uh stories as it were for their own sake uh except not for their own sake to help disciple us in the faith by applying biblical worldview to our imagination 
Uh, let's say that VeggieTales had kept going as it was, you know, doing pretty well um, and not falling apart, unfortunately, like the company did in the mid-2000s. Tragic story, that. Uh, let's say we still had the bookstores around. Uh, maybe they got the business model straightened out. Uh, maybe they didn't uh, fall for Amazon, uh, just uh, the whole ebook revolution taking over with all of the challenges that are with that. You know, we still had Christian bookstores around to function as centers of learning and not just commerce. That would have been nice, but that happened in Earth 2. Uh, in Earth 1, like you said, Zach, um, unfortunately, the pragmatism was still around. Uh, I think maybe we fell a little too hard for some political promises uh, to help uh, restore the soul of the nation and things like that from the top down uh, rather than from the ground up. Uh, maybe there is a lot of uh, very well-meaning Christian grandmas and grandpas out there uh, who you know had worked very hard all their lives and had some money to spare, and they sent it to candidates instead of ministries and companies that might invest in stories. Maybe all the resources uh, there got invested in the politics uh, instead of the imagination. And so it seems a little short-sighted, uh, in the retrospect at least. Uh, it seems like the resources could have been better, more wisely distributed. The results now are that uh, the Christian, other, uh, other evangelical subcultures get pushed to the margins. And then at least for a while, our cultural imagination uh, collapsed. Uh, there's some Christian audio dramas still going on, uh, but a lot of it is, I mean, they got tens of thousands of fans, if not more, but you don't see uh, the Christian websites uh, talking about uh, Odyssey uh, or even, uh, you know, Oasis Audio or other publishers and creators that we know. Uh, we want to change that, frankly, <laughs> fantastical truth. We want, we want the news about these stories to go out there and then get funded better because folks respond to it and then buy more so that you can you know, support the company and the company can invest more. It's struggling because uh, everybody's focused on the politics instead. There's still things like contemporary Christian music, uh, but a lot of the songs are more meant for churches now. It's not so much uh, kind of a subculture all on its own. I think some of that is still going on. Uh, it's, it's certainly changed uh, with uh, streaming music and things like that. But most of the attention now is politics, obsessions over politics, candidates, pundits, movements, debates, obsessions, on and on and on. And, and I have to fight not to get drawn into it. And I know you do too, Zach. Like, yes, we'll be involved. We get involved in those discussions, but you know, I don't talk about taxes or borders uh, or even candidates all that much. Uh, for me, it's more interesting for what it reveals about the imaginations of the human heart. And here, I think I will quote directly from that article. I say that I contend a Christian popular subculture obsessed only with politics is a weaker subculture. Even if you were a shallow Christian who had turned his faith into a means toward political ends, it would make zero sense to focus exclusively on politics. Even for such a Christian, you must also focus on the rest of popular culture, the stories, songs, games, memes, and imaginations that take that shortcut past the head and into the heart. How much more so then should faithful Christians who do make Jesus the chief end and any political engagement the means see that Jesus has called us to steward our creative investment in stories, songs, and even film franchises and music bands, however derivative, for his glory? That's the end of the quotes. I wrote that in January 2021. Things have changed a little bit. I'm seeing signs for optimism. I don't know if we're close to the golden age, as you mentioned, it, Zach, in a previous episode we did. But more folks, uh, including many mainstream Christian leaders, uh, have started talking more about stories. And thank God they've moved beyond, I think, maybe more juvenile phase of 
well, let's go to that movie and then talk with people about it. And then that pragmatism you talked about, Zach, stories exist for discipling Christians, not just building bridges with non-believers. Uh, it's about glorifying God, not just trying to win some souls to Jesus. You know, you talked about memes in that list of things that we produce in culture besides stories, songs, games. And I, I think about this all the time, why memes are so effective. There's this one meme account that all it does is it takes an old statement and a new statement by some political figure and puts them together. And that's it. No commentary at all. <laughs> just to show the cultural drift and shift. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's usually to show hypocrisy. So it, it uh, takes something that's happened in the news recently that political person A is really fired up about, but then uh, it shows a statement from back in time a couple of years ago where they had a totally different position or at least an inconsistent position, and they were arguing for the other thing and are basically arguing for a totally different principle, but because of how it would benefit their party each time. So all, all they really care about is benefiting their party. They don't have a principle. And some people have said, well, this isn't hypocrisy, it's hierarchy. The actual problem in politics today is people that aren't ruling according to a principle. They are just ruling according to power. And that is why politics is just, you know, I, I just can't engage with it hardly anymore because that's all it really is, that there's very little of it that is principle-based. But this whole issue of, you know, hierarchy, not hypocrisy, it's brought to mind Animal Farm. You know, Animal Farm captured this so well, where the pig, you know, scribbles on the wall. Well, all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And that phrase, I have seen that crop up so many times in the last few years. That's and from a just, story. Yeah, It's from a story that has been around for how many decades? And that has totally shaped the moral imagination of so many people that are pushing back on this hierarchical political movement. And I, I think it really shows a proof of concept that when we invest in stories, although that takes patience, <laughs> although that takes a very slow, long approach, it can pay huge results. We just have to fight the impulse of instant gratification culture. I agree. And, and let's talk about what we mean by invest in stories. Like, I guess if you use the word invest and you're thinking about uh, the guy on the front of the Monopoly board, you know, with the top hat and who's running around with bags full of cash, uh, some guy on the floor of the stock exchange in New York City or something like that. Uh, no, not, not invest as in, uh, you know, corporations and things, stocks and bonds and dividends and whatnot, uh, but how you invest your time uh, closer to what Jesus would have described as what you do with your talents. Uh, you as an individual, a faithful listener, have decisions to make every day because today is the first day of the rest of your life about <laughs> how you invest your time. You know, are you going to doom scroll on Twitter? Uh, even though there's less doom and a little bit more uh, glee with folks running around saying what they ought not say, you know, like men don't magically turn into women by the power of faith. Like that's a big controversial statement. Now the folks are saying it with glee on there. Like, well, you could do that, but to what end, you know, what is your calling? What are you supposed to do as a person created in God's image with a job to do? for his glory and for your joy, you know, is that going to help? Like, well, maybe here and there, but are there other ways you could invest your time? Uh, I think more folks have been making some wiser decisions even since I uh, wrote that article about politics taking over uh, evangelical subculture. Uh, one example is uh, The Chosen, actually. And what's kind of fascinating is that uh, if you follow Dallas Jenkins, uh, the creator of The Chosen, uh, he has some political views that he's actually been fairly free about, which is kind of fun. 
Uh, but he is very, I think, uh, cautious and I think appropriately wise in putting those in their place and going full on out uh, to market the chosen. And of course, as we record this, there's been some controversy over a line that Jesus said that some people thought bore a surface similarity to the Book of Mormon, which wasn't the case. And people can debate the line and Dallas Jenkins encourages them to debate the line. We'll debate the line probably in another show. Yeah, spoiler alert. It wasn't a direct quote from the Book of Mormon. It wasn't a direct quote. No, uh, but folks who have experienced with Mormons, you know, uh, maybe they that's that's what they see. And it's very hard not to see that. So yeah. I, I get it. Uh, but the point being is that he's chosen to create something, uh, create a show uh, with expertise and uh, creative excellence uh, that has far more potential uh, to influence people. And I would say to glorify God, given the gifts that he and others around him have found from God, uh, that's going to be more powerful, more longer lasting. It's going to have a legacy that outlives the most important election that's going on right now. And that's just one TV show, folks. It's set records. It's got attention from secular folks. Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. We see, for example, a little bit of an example here, you know, and the guy who played Jesus Christ got to meet the Pope because he's Catholic and that can confuse some people. Uh, that's one of those team ups we're talking about. Like, just so we're mindful of the differences. I think we can do those team ups just so not as we're not all pretending uh, we're part of the same local church because we're not. That's just been within the last two years that that got hugely popular. Uh, we've got uh, the same studios, Angel Studios, uh, is releasing the Wing Feather Saga TV series, I believe starting in December. Uh, and actually, this week, we'll talk about it in a moment. Uh, we're starting our next book quest in the Lorehaven Guild uh, for Andrew Peterson's first book, On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. Could Andrew Peterson do more good running for office or supporting a candidate or posting on social media about tax policy or border laws? or even what they ought not be teaching the kids in school these days, which I think is a far more legitimate and important thing to post about. No, Andrew Peterson is singing and songwriting. He's making stories. He's getting attention. He's doing it with excellence. Right now, by the way, uh, Andrew Peterson is the kingpin of Christian fantasy. <laughs> it's not even a contest. He's managed to go places that other, other authors have not, and that's okay. Uh, God will choose certain people for certain platforms, and others, you know, maybe don't have those kinds of platforms. That's okay. We just want to do our part uh, to popularize everybody who's doing these things with excellence. But people are paying more attention to this. So politics are starting to uh, move off the throne just a little bit. You've got some other interests uh, that are being ordered uh, around Christ on the throne, because it should be Christ on the throne, reordering our interest, including but not limited to politics. And then a third example, Zach, we've actually had a few folks on the show from the Daily Wire, which is a politically conservative organization uh, with uh, pundits and other writers on there who may say many controversial things. But just since I've written that article, uh, they've moved more in the direction of trying to make stories, not just points with facts and logic. Uh, in fact, some of their contributors like Andrew Clavin, he backed off of his daily podcast and has now gone to a weekly podcast. Uh, he's a Christian fantasy author. He's also writing detective mysteries. Now, I wouldn't agree with his views on everything. Uh, he's a little bit more of a mainline evangelical uh, Messianic Jew who converted much later in life. But where it counts, he's solid. And uh, my impression now, and I don't know him, but my impression is that he will be glad to talk about the politics. But then the heart of his podcasts are talking about not just the social issues, but faith and art and the purpose that God has put beauty in the world and imagination, like that seems to be increasingly where he is. 
And so you see then kind of this whole political outfit kind of be pulled a little bit more in that direction, which I am perfectly happy with. Uh, now they can uh, engage with the social issues and do some, uh, you know, right-wing journalism and own people with facts and logic. I'm okay with that, more okay than others. Uh, but I like to see this emphasis increasingly on stories, not just fantasy, by the way, and not just Christian-made stories, but certainly included there. And that is a great and encouraging thought that politics may be on the throne for now, uh, but it's not going to last. I mean, Christ needs to be on the throne to borrow the track language, uh, but that needs to reorder these interests uh, with politics and storytelling uh, now going toward the glory of God uh, rather than being a, a domineering or totalizing influence all of, over all of our lives. Yeah. And I think the key to getting politics off the throne is realizing what the emotional impulse is that tries to put it there. And it's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. It's fear of, oh, if I don't pay attention 24 seven to politics, I'm going to miss something. Well, that's true. <laughs> like it, politics is happening so fast and all the time, thanks to cable news and social media. So yes, if you don't pay attention to everything, you will miss something. Now, there are people like uh, my lovely wife Naomi that are just blissfully unaware. Just ignorance is bliss. I don't scroll through social media. I don't throw, scroll through the news sites. I don't really care, and I I love that about her. Uh, but for a lot of people, it, it really is hard to fight that FOMO. And so what I would suggest for that is have FOMO about something else. You know, we've mentioned Angel Studios. Well, I pulled up their website. Besides The Chosen, they've got another series that's being currently funded called Testament. And it's like a modern day retelling of Acts. They've got an animated, they've, you know, you mentioned the Wingfeather Saga. They've got another animated series called David. Uh, they've got a little more political libertarian show called Tuttle Twins, but it's a fantastical show about these kids learning, I, I think, libertarian principles, but through interesting adventures. And then they've got other uh, modern day and even, I think, a sci-fi uh, series. Now, again, people, I, I hear the comments, Angel Studios. Yes, it's founded by members of the LDS Church, Mormons. I've been reading a lot of stuff about them. There are a lot of evangelicals that work there. And they have, you know, kind of a, a nice little alliance, I guess you could say. But the nice thing about Angel Studios, they are not a typical Hollywood studio that is trying to take over all these projects and insert an ideological bias. All of these projects are totally separate from one another and from the studio in terms of creative control, at least is how I understand it. And because this is the trend that we've come to expect from Kickstarter and, and Indiegogo and other sort of crowdfunded projects is that the creators have control and whichever fans and followers they have, they're going to fund it and that's how it works. And those are the people that are going to get it. So what we're really seeing is a trend of decentralization, which I think is the actual silver bullet against the obsession with national politics that totalizes everything. Let's just get away from that and focus on these more individual projects that align with our values and that are enjoyable stories. And it might be a financial investment for you. It might just be a, an investment of time. But I think that's where we're really going to see change in our culture because it always comes back to the stories that we tell within our families and within our churches. Uh, before recording, I mentioned off the air a, a funny quote my cousin said 20 years ago that my wife and I still quote. It's a story that we remember from so long ago. And Naomi actually keeps a, a quote book of funny things our kids have said. And it's these stories that 
have so much more value and power in our family. And so I, I think this is always the key is invest in the stories that you enjoy, first of all, that you're not being forced into because of FOMO. But again, sometimes you have to fight FOMO with better FOMO. I think FOMO is a great way to look at it. I think it's also, Zach, a, a legitimate fears that people have, uh, especially now. Uh, let, let me avoid any um, really close to home references here and just talk about uh, the war in Ukraine momentarily. Uh, nobody's going to go after the folks trying to live their lives and work and raise their families in Ukraine uh, if they're not making more stories. Uh, let's say there's a Ukrainian Christian, like, well, you need to, you need to have, uh, you know, regular local church attendance and you need to have stories for your kids, you know, not just be worried about uh, the invaders coming into your land. Um, that would be silly to say. If you're feeling invaded and you're actually, your home is compromised, your life, your career is compromised, then you need to go into emergency measures. Uh, you're not just fear of missing out a trend, you're fear of missing out on life and basics, uh, stuff that, that humans need. Uh, but even there, I think that's an emergency measure. Uh, that is a temporary, uh, unwanted state there. Uh, if yeah, it's you like are, that French town with the stuck train. Is... Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's something you got to do for the moment, but so maybe you feel like you put politics as your king for a while. Uh, that's gotta be with limited emergency powers. Uh, if it holds on to those emergency powers for too long afterwards, uh, because, you know, just government will do that if you give it its lead. And sometimes even if you don't, uh, then you're in a bad situation. Uh, Christ is not on the throne. Politics is on the throne of your culture uh, for just for just for now, you know, just because it's an emergency. Well, if the emergency has gone away, then it doesn't make sense anymore. Uh, I think you're right, Zach, that uh, we need to then get rid of those fears, uh, live in the power and love and self-control that the apostle Paul said we are supposed to do. Uh, yes, ward off the invaders, you know, protect your kids. If there are legitimate threats, things like that, but a way to protect your kids and a way to help your kids grow is stories. I, for one would not care so much now about some of these political issues, hopefully in their proper place. If it wasn't for stories, superhero movies did as much, if not more, to shape me during the 2000s decade uh, than even all of the political drama that was going on then. Uh, you had Spider-Man, uh, you had the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, even Superman Returns and the Green Lantern movie everyone hated uh, really helped me out. Uh, that is not just an alternative FOMO going on there, uh, but it's a way that my heart was shaped to look to these stories about metahuman heroes uh, overall pursuing virtue uh, and trying to do the right thing, even despite terrible political challenges. Uh, we need those stories, not just from the world, but by Christians. And so that leads really to the personal application there. Yeah, Zach, you've, you've gone there already. Like, Find the stories that you love that help you become a person more like Jesus and then naturally support them. Not because you're supposed to, but because you want to. Uh, if you keep up with the political issues, please keep doing that, you know, not just for the glory of God or to be winsome or to take back America, but out of faithfulness to him uh, as a citizen and as a saint of the kingdom to come. But that kingdom is going to include stories and we can get started on those now. Uh, that's why we do Lorehaven. That's why we do the Lorehaven Guild. And that's why we're keeping an eye on uh, these other companies that have more resources and some political complications. Yeah, Angel Studios is owned by Mormons. Uh, I think we can do some creative team-ups, but not doctrinal team-ups. Mormonism is not Christianity. 
uh, any more than atheism is Christianity. There may be some overlap with the language we use, uh, but that calls for some caution. And I want to pray for the Christians who are you know, dealing with some personal politics in order to get some great stories made. Uh, that's uh, got to be complicated, but it's going to be complicated when Christians work together too. Uh, this whole thing is uh, this whole thing is complicated, but I think it gets a little less complicated when we're finding our lives shaped more by great Christian-made stories that glorify Jesus and other works of Christian-made culture uh, that aren't just all politics all the time. Well, let's head on over to the comm station where we have what we expected to find, some comments about the Nephilim. We knew that you, our listener, would have opinions, and so we're going to read a few of those. Jacob Mooney replied to our episode about Nephilim, number 135. Jacob said, quote, it was a very good episode with wise perspectives and cautions. Well, thank you, Jacob. I appreciate that. It, it is a tricky topic, and so uh, we enjoyed our discussion. And Kevin Robinson also replied and said, quote, Methinks you might be dismissing Nephilim too quickly, and you call yourself speculative fiction lovers. <laughs> but seriously, the subject is way more interesting and deeper than you think if you actually look into it, and not just in a paranormal conspiracy sort of way. Michael Heiser's books give a pretty convincing argument for the more supernatural approach to not just Nephilim, but the Anakim, the heavenly host, actual giants, nine or ten feet tall, all of that stuff, and he uses way more than a few verses in Genesis 6 and Numbers or whatever. You might find yourself sucked into some very interesting speculative theology if you dare look deeper, but I very much appreciated both of you guys' careful and cautious approach to the subject. There are far too many who are obsessed with the subject, probably in unhealthy ways. Great discussion as always, gents. End quote. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. We, we did try to be uh, as clear and careful as we could. And that's interesting you bring, bring up Michael Heiser. I have his book, The Unseen Realm. I've started to read it, uh, but I haven't gotten to the part about the Anakim yet. So that sounds like an interesting uh, sequel possible episode there, Stephen, to the Nephilim. Oh, we're, we're assuredly going to say more about that subject. And I don't know if we'll have Michael Heiser on, but we may have some uh, folks who uh, explore the topic at length. Uh, we already cited some stuff from uh, Tim Chafee in our last episode. I found it fascinating, but as I said then, uh, only as fascinating as it took to record the episodes. And I'll do a deep dive and then come up for air and then move on with my life. Uh, other folks uh, seem to want to camp there, maybe make a cottage industry into it. And on the one level, I just don't get it uh, because it's only a few verses of the Bible and God is the divine author of scripture. Didn't think it was nearly as important as we seem to think. I mean, you may as well reduce the entirety of the Bible message to Philistine architecture or something like, well, yeah, it's there, but you know, what was the point of the golden tumors uh, described in the book of First Samuel? Like uh, commentary noted best, and then I'm going to keep reading. Uh, it's not that uh, drastically important to me, at least. But I, I get wanting to delve into uh, some of the more interesting stuff there. And by the way, yes, uh, those folks who understand the Hebrew and all that, we know that Nephilim is plural. So don't talk about a Nephilim or he is a Nephilim as best you can say that so-and-so character in your uh, pre-flood fantasy novel is one of the Nephilim. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Heiser has to say. I find it interesting, Kevin, how you said Heiser's book is it's more supernatural, but it's not a paranormal conspiracy. So that that intrigues me right there. I'll have to touch base again on this topic when I finish that book. Then we got a note from David Wright on Twitter who said, quote, I really enjoyed your fantastical truth episode on the Nephilim. I'm someone who wants to believe in a supernatural meaning. But the point about the lines of Seth and Cain was eye-opening. Love your show. 
Also, I really took to heart the point about how spiritual warfare stories in Christian fiction need to keep the blame on flawed humans and not on some external conflict between angels and demons. End quote. And David, I totally feel you on this about wanting a supernatural meaning. I made, I made the joke about, well, the Nephilim were probably taken into orbit by a spaceship, and that's how they were on the Earth before and after the flood, because where else did they come from? Um, I love to think about that kind of stuff. Of course, I'm, I'm mostly joking about that. But I do take your point to heart that, you know, I want to believe in a supernatural meaning because the Bible is a supernatural book. We live in a supernatural world. And yes, that includes things like spiritual warfare. So how do we make sense of that too, while still not removing human agency or human responsibility? I think it's a great challenge for fiction. I, I think, uh, you know, I've read plenty of nonfiction about this, but it's so much more interesting to see this play out in a story as a sort of reality simulator. Like, okay, if we could actually see some of the spiritual warfare going on, just like was it Elijah that at, that prayed for his servant to have his eyes open, or was it Elisha? I always get this part mixed up, Stephen. That was Elisha, yeah. What, what Elisha that said, okay, you know, God opened this servant's eyes, and then he was able to see the chariots of fire. And so I I love those little peaks behind the curtain, but that was such a brief peak, and the rest of that chapter of the Bible dealt with the you know human responsibility, human action. So. How do you have a good balance of this in fiction? I would love to see more of that. So let us know, our listener, if you have found some good examples of that. I'm sure we'll talk about spiritual warfare in the future. But if you've got comments on politics, oh, please send them our way to podcast. You do have comments at on lorehaven.com. Tag us on social media. Just search Lorehaven. Meanwhile, at Lorehaven, uh, I think it's important to note that there are many ways to fight evil. Uh, not just the spiritual weapons, not just uh, being aware of the greater realities that are going on, whether it's the angel demon dimension or in the hallowed halls of politics. But as the scripture cautions us, do not despise the day of small things. Sometimes to defeat evil, you just enjoy your life. You take your Sabbath rest. You're not just working all the time. And if you're being attacked by something, maybe you engage in some kind of supernatural spiritual warfare, or maybe you grab your Winchester, which is what the heroes of Dracula have to do. Uh, as of this episode date in the Lorehaven Guild, we have closed the crypt on our book quest through Dracula, yet some heroes of the Guild are still talking about it. That's our custom Discord server, about 200 heroes in there now going through monthly book quests, all Christian-made fantastical fiction. This week, we've begun our next book quest, and that, as I mentioned, is uh, into the On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness book. That's the book one of the Wingfeather Saga from Andrew Peterson. Uh, to join any of these book quests, uh, you have to sign up for free at lorehaven.com. Find the best Christian-made fantasy there. Join hundreds of other fans now. You subscribe at lorehaven.com. We'll send you that exclusive invitation to the Discord server. Uh, meanwhile, at the site, uh, we've had many articles now as we close off a spooky season 2022. We did a, a, a article with recommended reads of Christian paranormal thrillers. Uh, we did another piece about uh, some of the dysfunctional sparkly relationships in the Twilight saga. Uh, and then last Friday, uh, we did a double retro review of Frank Peretti's book, The Oath, and Mark Schooley's book, Koenig's Fire. I love both of those stories. I actually got to write both those reviews. Uh, those are at lorehaven.com. All the links in the show notes there. Uh, this month, Lord willing, we're going to have more content focused on dystopian doom, kind of spinning off of the podcast emphasis here. 
And then our next review after this episode uh, will cover On the Edge of the Dark Sea of Darkness. You can also get all those updates, uh, whatever ones you want, by subscribing free at lorehaven.com. Next on Fantastical Truth, no discussion about dystopian doom would be complete without these two classic books. Zach already mentioned Animal Farm from George Orwell. We're not reading that one. We're reading another one from him. They're not Christian-made books, though, as far as we know. But as Zach mentioned earlier, these books have affected so many people's fears and legitimate concerns about not just the threat of dystopian government, but fake utopian government. Last summer, I actually read both of those books for the first time. Yeah, a little later in life, I wish I'd read them back in high school or something like so many of you have. But by the way, that sent me into uh, a sporadic literary depression, uh, certainly uh, with 1984. But I educated myself. I got caught up with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World from 1932 and George Orwell's 1984 in 1949. In this next episode, we will explore the differences of these books. We're going to ask which villain is worse, uh, the flippant Mustafa Mond of Brave New World or the torture of Big Brother in 1984. And of course, we will explore which one of these dystopian dooms are we more likely to confront today. Meanwhile, maybe you stay the blazes out of political fights. Maybe you don't fear missing them out at all. But just know that, yes, these conflicts are important because human beings are important. I think it's something that Christians have to do, but it's not all that we have to do. God did not create us to work to build the world through law and culture 24-7. He's also given us times of rest and recovery and recreation. That's what stories are for, but they still change us, often changing us from the inside out better than the politics can change us from the top down. Let's put politics in their place and let's put Christ, not politics, on the throne of our lives to reorder all of our interests, including but not limited to politics, as we continue to seek and find his fantastical truth. <laughs>